0: I want to call your attention now to the gospel of Matthew chapter 5, a portion from which I read a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 5, and we will read once again verse 3 of this chapter, Matthew 5, 3, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These, of course, are the opening words of what I think of as the greatest sermon ever preached. At least it is the longest sermon ever or discourse recorded in Holy Scripture from our Lord Jesus Christ while he was on this earth. His audience for this sermon are those called his disciples in verse 1. And the word disciples simply means students. They were probably ranging from those who were very close and committed followers and students and disciples of his, the ones we think of as the twelve, all the way to those who perhaps were more casually curious. We read in the previous verses at the end of chapter 4 of these great multitudes that were Following him, and of course, many of them ended up not following him after a while. And there's there's a wide range of people listening. Perhaps the message is intended especially for those that are the closer disciples and the more uh, committed disciples, we might say. Nevertheless, as you look at the whole sermon, you see. Instructions given to those who are unconverted and those who are unbelievers. And so there is obviously a a wide range in his audience on that day. The location for this sermon is a mountain, according to verse 1, a mountain in Galilee. And because of The preaching and teaching here by our Lord and the fact that it's on a mountain, the name Sermon on the Mount has stuck with this portion of Scripture, these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, ever since Augustine gave it that name many years ago. We're told here something about the posture of Jesus. Kind of the opposite of what we do in in a church service today. When you sit and I stand. In this occasion and in that culture, the teacher would sit and the students would stand. And so it says in verse 1, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, that is when he had taken a seat, having sat down, his disciples came to him And he opened his mouth, it says, and taught them. Our Lord was a teacher. He gave the information, but he gave it passionately. And that makes him a preacher also. And we see that term used with reference to the Lord in his public ministry in other places, of course. He opened his mouth. It, it was truth that proceeded from him when he opened his mouth and spoke. There's emphasis here on the, the content and upon his speaking and the people's hearing. We might look over at the end of chapter 7 and see what was the impact of this sermon In verses 28 and 29, it says, It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. These people had never heard anything like this before. This was revolutionary to them. We have read the Sermon on the Mount, heard it many times, many parts of it. You can probably quote. There's hardly anything in it that you, when you hear the beginning of a verse, you know what comes next and you can finish the verse in your own mind and so on. It was not that way with the original audience. This was countercultural to them they were amazed they were struck that's the meaning of this word when it says astonished they were they were hit they were struck with wonder because it says in his teaching he taught with authority not like the scribes the scribes didn't speak with authority they would quote other authorities they would say they would give precedent and previous teaching but not jesus he doesn't refer to any previous rabbi here he doesn't say shema says thus and so on this subject that's how the scribes of that day would would speak in fact Jesus didn't even speak as the Old Testament prophets when they said, Thus saith the Lord. He doesn't even use that kind of language here, does he? He speaks with his own authority and says, I say unto you. He speaks as God, the final authority. And he was indeed the God man, God incarnate, giving this sermon on the Mount. He begins this sermon with these eight or possibly nine, it depends on how you look at the last two, declarations about who is happy. Who is happy? Who is blessed? And from the very first declaration of this sermon, the shock waves began to hit his hearers. Again, just imagine you had never heard the, these words before. And these opening verses, of course, are called the Beatitudes. The, the Latin word uh, beatitude or our English word comes from Latin, but that's the, the rendering for the word blessed here. Imagine you'd never heard these beatitudes, these who are the blessed, who are the happy. And the first thing you hear as the Lord opens his mouth, begins to speak is blessed, happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The very first word, again, is significant, blessed. It means happy. Happy is perhaps the nearest uh, equivalent that we can find in our modern way of saying things. But it is not a shallow Happiness. It is a profound happiness. The biblical concept of blessedness goes deeper than superficial feelings of happiness. The way that we speak of happiness today, it's a very uh, changeable thing, it can come and go you be happy one day and sad the next. Happy one hour and sad the next. That's not what the Lord is talking about here when he says, happy are these. The biblical concept of blessedness or profound happiness refers not so much to what one feels as to what one is. Our Lord is making a declaration of who is happy and what happiness is. We think of happiness as a subjective emotion. But blessedness, happiness in the sense in which our Lord speaks here, is not a subjective emotion. It is an objective gift or endowment. It is that which he confers upon a person. In our modern use of the word happiness, the opposite would be sadness. But the opposite of being blessed is what? To be cursed. And so when Jesus says blessed are Eight or nine times, well, nine times here he says, blessed are. We should understand he means supremely fortunate are these. Irreversibly fortunate are these. And of course, God is the only one who can make a pronouncement like that. He is the one who defines happiness. He is the one who bestows blessedness in the full sense of the word. He alone can make us profoundly fortunate. Blessed. Now, who does he say is happy here? Blessed are the poor in spirit. If we were to go around and ask in a survey uh, fashion, Today, what happiness is. What kind of answers do you suppose we would get? You know, sometimes you see happiness is, you, know, my Doberman Pincher or something like that. Happiness is, some would say, a healthy family. No one's sick, all gathered together for a holiday dinner. To have a loving and happy and peaceful family, that's happiness. Some might say, for me, happiness is my dream job. To be promoted to management or to be recognized by your peers as as doing a good job, that's happiness. Happiness. For some, it might be a dream vacation, getting away and escaping from the hectic schedule just to relax and see some beautiful scenery. For some, happiness might be a dream retirement, free from all of the daily worries and cares and having money to spare. For many today, happiness is having lots of toys, grown-up toys, to keep you from being bored. According to our United States Declaration of Independence, we consider the pursuit of happiness an unalienable right. Everyone has the god-given right to pursue happiness. Doesn't mean necessarily you'll find it, but you have the right to pursue it, to seek after it. And everyone does seek after it. If you're a human being, it's built into your very essence that you desire happiness and you Seek after happiness, and you endeavor to find happiness. But everyone seeks it in different ways. Blaise Pascal said, some go to war to achieve happiness, and others avoid war to achieve happiness. John Blanchard says, many seek happiness in marriage. Others seek happiness in divorce. Some look for happiness in the birth of a child. Others look for happiness in the killing of a child. Some look for happiness in wealth. Others look for happiness in taking vows of poverty. Some look for happiness in eating others look for happiness in dieting. It remains a most elusive principle. Everyone seeks for happiness and they can't find it. It may be said that the search for happiness is the chief source of unhappiness. And The book of Ecclesiastes makes that point so clearly, doesn't it? Solomon looked everywhere for happiness and never found it. It was only when he stopped looking for happiness and began looking for God that he found happiness and God. And that brings us very close to our text here blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven God's definition of happiness is the true definition he is the standard he is the authority on happiness according to him the happy ones are the poor in spirit now what is it to be poor in spirit this is a phrase That we don't use in our daily conversation. Poor in spirit. Well, Jesus is not speaking about economic poverty, but spiritual poverty. And if you're familiar with a very parallel statement given on a different occasion in Luke chapter 6, You know that there he simply says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say poor in spirit, but the context there is parallel to this one. It's obvious from what he says before and after that he's talking about the same kind of poverty, spiritual poverty, not uh, financial or economic poverty. Poverty in itself is no virtue. Financial poverty in itself is no virtue. Otherwise, we would not be commanded to distribute or to to share with those in need. Because we would be robbing them of their blessing of poverty. Poverty of any kind normally leads to sadness. Sadness. To be financially poor is is a difficulty. To be in poor health is a sad condition. To be perhaps poor in friends and to have few or none, that's a very sad state of affairs. To be poor in mind and so on. These are all sad things. But Jesus tells us here there is a kind of poverty that is a happy thing that should not be pitied. A, a poverty that is a cause of true joy. And he calls it poverty of spirit. Spirit. Let me just try to define poverty of spirit. It is to be spiritually lacking, to have something missing, to be reduced, to be spiritually empty, to have something that is vital, that is missing, to be at the end of yourself. And the end of your own resources. It's to be empty handed. To be poor in spirit means to have no righteousness in God's sight. It means to be out of funds in God's accounting. To be spiritually bankrupt. To have no righteousness in his sight and to have no living relationship with him. To be poor in spirit means to be reduced to the level of a beggar in the sight of God, to be a spiritual pauper. Perhaps the best simple definition of poverty of spirit is this to be humbled before god humbled before god to be convicted over sin and impoverished in spirit because of sin and what does the lord say about such a one he says this one is the blessed one this one is the truly Profoundly happy one. This is the one who is fortunate. For he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They start out poor in spirit. Humbled before God. Convicted over their sin. But they end up rich after all. Spiritually rich. And To have a kingdom is, in a way, the opposite of being poor in spirit. To have the kingdom of heaven means to be rich in the eyes of God. Those who are poor in spirit, he says, are the citizens of God's kingdom. They come under his rule in their life. They come under his rule in their heart here and now. And after this life, they inherit heaven, a heavenly kingdom as heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ in his glory and honor. In the words of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 7, he that overcometh shall inherit all things. The kingdom of heaven is inherited by those who who overcome, and of course that's a, a parallel to the poor in spirit here in our text. The poor in spirit enter into the unspeakable joys of eternal life, and there is no privilege higher than that. There's Nothing imaginable that exceeds the privilege and joy of being in God's kingdom and, in a sense, uh, possessing his kingdom, owning his kingdom, being an heir of his kingdom with Christ and through Christ. This is unsurpassed blessedness, blissfulness, happiness, And it's forever. I would point out the present tense of the verb here. He doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven. He speaks here and now. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's much in that no doubt. It's a present reality. And the certainty of what is future is so certain that it may be spoken of as present. And therefore we enjoy present comfort and hope. From that prospect, we are in his kingdom. Listen, if you're poor in spirit, as he describes here, then you're in his kingdom now. He rules and reigns in your heart now. And you will go to be with him in glory forever. That is happiness. That is blessedness. Now, in all of these Beatitudes... It is as if we have to supply, between the two clauses, some information. And this information is given by our Lord in other places. But here in this sermon and in in these opening words of this sermon, he intentionally shortens the statements no doubt for effect and pungency and to cause further investigation, to encourage further hearing. So, what is between being poor in spirit and possessing the kingdom of heaven? Well, the poor in spirit, recognizing their lack, their emptiness, their need, find all that they need in God. They find what they desire in salvation. They are poor in spirit, they are humbled before God, and that humbling and that conviction of sin in the sight of God leads them to Christ. To turn from their sin and trust in Christ and find righteousness in the sight of God through Christ. They come to be at peace with God. They come to know him as heavenly father. They begin The the lifelong journey of walking with Christ. In their poverty of spirit, humbled before God, they confess their sin, they turn from it, and they trust in Christ, and they find in Him all that they need, all that they lack, all that was missing in their soul. They find true riches that cannot be measured in terms of dollars and cents. It's measured in terms of fellowship with God, peace with God, a clear conscience before God. If we don't understand that information in each of these Beatitudes... Then we might make the mistake that some have made who miss the whole point. And they think that Christ is offering a self help program in eight easy steps. And that's as far from the truth as it can be. What Jesus is saying here is you can't help yourself. You need my help. He's showing us how empty and bankrupt we are so that we might come to him to find riches of grace, riches of salvation, riches of eternal life. And so this verse before us today is consistent with so much of what we see elsewhere in scripture. Let me give you some examples from both the Old Testament and the New, we read in the book of Psalms, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Again, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The psalmist describes himself as a poor man. Poor in what way? Poor in spirit. The Lord says through the prophet Isaiah, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, a poor spirit. That's who I dwell with, God says. And Jesus later in the gospel of Luke said, everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, but he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. He who recognizes his poverty of spirit, humbles himself before God. He's the one that Christ will exalt and give him a kingdom. James puts it this way, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And so what we have here then is is this order. Conviction of sin, humility before God, poverty of spirit, and then finding salvation in Christ, finding true riches in him, and becoming a member of his kingdom, and having the fullness of that kingdom manifested in the glory of heaven to come. And before I say any more, let me say this. Just consider how Jesus himself, in a way, exemplifies this verse. Though he was without sin and he had no no sin of his own, yet he came into this world to bear our sins. That's why he died on the cross. And in that state of humiliation... He was emptied, destitute, reduced in every way that we can imagine. Paul puts it this way You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. He's talking about spiritually, obviously. How he humbled himself into the very dust. The very dust. The dust of Gethsemane. The dust of Calvary. The dust of the grave. Well, he did not see corruption. He rose from the dead triumphant, thank God. And now he is the king of heaven. And he is seated on the throne forever. He is Lord over all. Hallelujah. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our Lord knew something of this himself. But let me make one more point here. In our sinful pride, we naturally deny our spiritual poverty. We don't want to admit it. We refuse to confess it. And we look in the mirror and we like what we see. And we refuse to say, I'm poor in any way. And we feel insulted if someone tells us that we are lacking in anything. I'm doing fine, just as I am. I'm full and happy. I have plenty. Nothing missing. I have family and friends and career and fun. Nothing missing. Don't tell me there's something missing. And that, my friends, is the greatest of delusions. It's the greatest deception. It's not facing reality. It's not being honest with the word of God and honest with the conscience. And such ones live on deceptions. They live on diversions and distractions to keep them from facing the reality of poverty of spirit. They don't want to admit there's something major, something foundational. The very foundation itself is lacking. To refuse to acknowledge poverty of spirit is the epitome of self-righteousness. It's to say, I don't need anything. I'm good enough. I'm wealthy in spirit. I have all the resources I need in my own self. You know, lost man, especially secular lost man, you know, religious lost man is sometimes a a variation, but secular lost man admires and praises the self-confident, the self-assured, the self-reliant, The one who says, I'm not poor in any way at all. That's the one who is admired and praised. And that person looks at those who are poor in spirit and who recognize that they are poor in spirit and are humbled before God. He, he, looks at, at those, he looks at you and me, believer in Christ, and he feels sorry for us. He pities us. He looks down on us. He really despises us. And he says, that's such a sad thing to believe. That's such a sad way to live. The unbeliever rewrites this verse before us to say pity the poor in spirit. Sad are the poor in spirit. Lamentable are the poor in spirit. Miserable. As one famous fellow said some years ago, Christians are losers. Or, or may, I think you put it this way, Christianity is for losers. Well, I'm willing to confess to being a loser so that I might win Christ and gain his salvation. That man doesn't know how much of a loser we all are, naturally. Yes, Christianity is for losers, those that are poor in spirit. But we come out the winners. We come out the wealthy ones. We possess a kingdom of heaven. What Jesus says here is counter to our natural way of thinking. The ones poor in spirit are the ones who are blessed. And listen, friend, the truth is those who deny their poverty of spirit miss out on the blessing of happiness in the kingdom of heaven. It cannot be any other way. There's no kingdom of heaven for those who refuse to acknowledge that they're poor in spirit. No doubt this is why Jesus is so insistent on this point and puts it at the very front of this sermon. Because he knows none of us is willing to admit our need. We're too proud and self-sufficient to admit how empty we are. And unless God shows it to us, reveals it, and humbles us and convicts us, we'll never come to Christ. And so I want to ask you, as we draw to a close, do you sense your poverty of spirit? Do you say, yes, I'm the poor in spirit. I'm humbled before God. I have sin in his sight. I am guilty and I have no excuse. I have no defense. And I need his grace. I need his son to be my savior. Or do you deny poverty of spirit? Which is it? Do you admit it or deny it? Do you recognize that something vital, essential, is missing in your soul? Have you come to see yourself as needy in the sight of God? Listen, there are people who recognize something's missing. Sometimes they say it like this. There's a hole in my life. There's a hole in my soul. And they go around looking everywhere to satisfy that and to fill that space. And they try everything imaginable, legal and illegal, moral and immoral, My friend, if that's you today, I can tell you what's missing is God. What's missing is Jesus Christ. Again, it was Mr. Pascal who said that there is a God shaped vacuum in every soul. And that hole, that vacuum, only God can fill. And that's what he means, what Pascal means when he says it's a God-shaped vacuum. Only he can fill it. The best friend can't fill it. The best spouse cannot fill it. The best church cannot fill it. The best pleasure cannot fill it. Only God himself in the person of Jesus Christ can fill that space. And... Give the riches in place of the poverty of spirit. And so stop looking anywhere else and look to Christ. Humble yourself before God. Come to Him and say, God, I'm empty. I have nothing. I'm just a poor, empty sinner. Desperately in need of your saving grace. And I come to Christ for all that I need. I'm looking to Him. And my friend, you will find in Christ all that you need, all that satisfies. And yes, you'll find the kingdom of heaven, you'll find spiritual wealth. Spiritual joys and pleasures that only those in Christ get to know. Oh, I want everyone here today to know this happiness, this blessedness. And it can only be found by humbling yourself before God and taking His salvation that He gives freely. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't pay for it. You have to humble yourself, empty-handed. Take it as his gift. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.